So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. It's July 1st, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And tonight I was going to talk about uh, the fourth stage of the progress of insight, which is a knowledge of arising and passing. But I thought I would uh, pause uh, for a moment and see if anybody had any questions that they wanted to talk about first. Uh, I'm totally open to listening and not interrupting you with your teaching, but if I get a chance to ask and have conversation, I will. Okay. So either way. Um, <clears throat> one of the things about uh, the dialogue around the progress of insight or the Theravada practice in the West is the uh, experience of the dark night. Um, and that really is the sixth, seventh, and eighth stages of the progress of insight. Uh, the fearfulness around the, the deep uh, understanding of uh, no self or not self, the misery around the deep understanding of arising and passing, the impermanence of things, and the uh, disgust that arises in contemplation of the body as something that will grow old, get sick and die. And it comes out of the dissolution experience. Uh, and then uh, in a particular circles where there's a, a sense of, uh, of um, urgency around the potential harm that the uh, um, dark night or dark night is a Christian term, uh, knowledge of the miseries is the Buddhist term uh, we hit the fourth stage, which is knowledge of arising and passing, that if you have uh, what uh, Daniel Ingram calls the A and P event, the arising and passing event, that that is the, the point of no return. And so uh, years ago, uh, um, there was this uh, moment of the uh, cautionary um, disclaimer that once you go through the arising and passing event, you can't unsee the insights that come from that. And so you're stuck having to practice meditation for the rest of your life, because if you don't, you'll just be unhappy. Mm. Um, and I think uh, the way that I really thought of it is that you go from the perception of everything as being this continuous flowing movement of experience and that begins to unravel. And what you see is a combination of this kind of fluid macro experience and then this um, choppy staccato um, sort of, it's almost like you're watching a movie. Um, I'm, I'm dating myself. Remember a, a time when you went to the movie theater and it was actually film that they were showing and not a digital experience? <laughs> oh my, I've, I just thought of the digital equivalent. So uh, the film breaks and you see a couple of frames that go through the projector uh, and you see the individual frames with a little bit of movement in each one and then the screen goes white. In the digital world, of course, everything just becomes pixelated, right? Chunks uh, of, uh, of uh, blocks of uh, image rather than that fluid uh, appearance of 
the fluid motion of perception. When you're sitting in meditation and you pay attention to the arising and passing of everything, um, and you begin to see in each sense gate where you bring your attention, these small arisings and passings, uh, and uh, that the clarity gets so good that, that the, pre the presentation of the solid experience of self and world begins to break up and you see it just as this uh, sort of vibratory activity of arising and passing and you can't get the fluidity back. You can't get that sense of solidness back. Uh, that's one way to describe the arising and passing event. The way that I used to describe it is that you come into the chamber in Oz and the terrible uh, wizard is there as a floating head with flames and, and then little Toto runs across the floor and pulls back the curtain on the schlubby snake oil salesman. And as soon as you realize that the presentation of Oz is actually this uh, mechanical uh, thing, you can't unsee uh, the snake oil salesman and uh, of ignorance. And, uh, and you can no longer believe in the big terrifying experience of Oz. And then what are you left with? This understanding that the, the solidness of things, the reliability of that, that solidness is actually not what's there, not what's happening. The perception of the self as this ongoing continuous narrative is actually not that. And that you then uh, are confronted with this um, life in a in a body that's constantly changing and generally speaking not for the better after you get past the age of 30. <laughs> you might even get to a place where you can contemplate the end of the body the end of this uh, incarnation the end of this uh, period of time and then how do you hold that experience Christian? Is this different than like an experience of like derealization or depersonalization or some kind of dissociative experience? Well, it's very different than a dissociative experience because in a dissociative experience, there's an inward withdrawal and a fuzzing out. So the, the, the extraordinary sensory clarity of, of, the, of the arising and passing events in every sense gate wherever you turn your attention isn't present in that. Depersonalization is something that often happens in response to this because you can't actually get the solid sense of self experience to come back reliably enough to believe in it. And you're not yet adapted to the understanding that um, uh, that actually it's always been like that. That the belief in the illusion of the constant solid experience of self has never been more than a belief in something that's not actually there. And so uh, 
when I was uh, early on discussing this uh, phenomena with Shinzen, he described it as a very manicured, a very well-kept garden surrounded by a high wall through which there was a gate. And on the other side of the gate was a jungle that had no, uh, no order, was chaotic and often frightening. And that uh, the idea was to be able to pass through the gate uh, from the jungle into the manicured garden or out of the manicured garden into the jungle effortlessly. But that in the beginning, when you're moving in and out of this uh, belief in uh, a, a, an ongoing experience of self, that things are permanent and that the body will live forever, uh, you can't operate the latch on the gate with enough reliability to move in between the totally fixated, uh, cultivated experience of self and the the free-form uh, experience of the not-self. One of the things that becomes apparent as you, you do this is that the not-self experience, there's no suffering. And in some sense, the, the identification with the selfing experience shifts into an identification with the uh, awareness itself. And there's no suffering in awareness. And then when you need to jump into the experience of self, you jump into it and manifest this brilliant, capable experience of self. But then when you don't need it, you don't cling to it because you've seen that it's ephemeral and arises based on conditions and that it will arise again based on conditions and that there's no need to grasp onto it. There's no need to grab onto it. But then you'd have to, of course, allow it to dissolve. So the arising and passing is the seeing the, of the arising and seeing the passing away and seeing the arising and seeing the passing away. And if you look at the, the manual, it describes uh, a lot of markers that you could use as a way of evaluating that, say some 50 markers of that uh, arising and passing away. If there's no ground to stand on, how do you just continuously fall without the apprehension that you're going to land and splat, right? Um, one of the metaphors I really liked was that you fly, you're a bird and you fly in and out of a, a bird cage. In the bird cage, everything is relative, everything appears solid. But when you fly out of the bird cage, you see that the bird cage is just dropping through space. It's not actually resting on anything. Um, and so that frightens you and you fly back in and want to make everything solid again. But then it, you begin to acclimatize to it. It isn't something that you understand from the self side of things. It's something that you get used to. That this is actually how it is. It, uh, not only is this how it is, this is how it's always been that your identification, your habit of attaching and uh, making things solid and um, persisting in this idea that things are continuous and unending is what is the illusion, not the sense that it, it isn't solid. Christian?
So is this not necessarily like a single aha moment? Like it can be you kind of exploring this space until you you get that you it's not going to kill you. You're not going to go insane or whatever. <laughs> I'm not talking about my thought process at all. No, totally. I get that. Um, uh, like what 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 what's special about this as opposed to maybe other mystical experiences or even you know taking a hallucinogen or something like that like what's the what's the aha-ness of this particular insight the um one of the things about the tenacious nature of self and the tenacious na nature of the habit of believing in uh, the continuous experience of self the the solidness uh an ongoing nature of things, uh, and that the, 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 this body will live forever. It's an interesting thing because the body obviously is constantly aging, constantly changing, and yet still it's possible to imagine that this process of change and age will go on uh, forever. Um, it's not unusual to have people think that they'll live to be 100 or 120 or I, I have a student I work with who is quite convinced that she's going to live to be 130. You know, wow. um, you know, if you look at the math, the odds of that happening are so extraordinary uh, that I marvel at her uh, ease at uh, uh, un, uh, believing that. Most people uh, have a really difficult time when they hear that the average lifespan in, in the US is for males 74. I'm not the average, the life expectancy, that's different. A little bit older, a little bit longer for females. Um, if you 20% of people live longer than that. So 80% of people don't live longer than that. And yet, to imagine that that's a lifespan is not what uh, ordinarily we think. Um, so the the self is very tenacious in in its capacity to ignore uh, the, the the contradictions to this, uh, and uh, I think often what happens with psychedelic experience is that even though the sense of self dissolves and, and you have the uh, a kind of distorted picture of this, uh, um, you know, the visual field collapses, all of that stuff happens. There's the, a lot of uh, often uh, hallucinations of some sort or another, uh, that it isn't enough to actually convince the sense of self that it's not real because uh, you take a substance it changes the biology of the brain and then it wears off and you slide out of the sense of self into this other experience which the self is also having and then you slide out of the experience and you have no agency to come and go any more than you had before unless you repeat the the taking of the substance 
Whereas in meditation, if you practice in a way that leads to these kinds of insights, uh, you don't obviously need to do any, uh, use any uh, psychedelics, um, but you you develop the skill at moving out of the experience of solidness into the experience of arising and passing of Shinzen uses the term flow. And you develop the skill to move in and out of fixating things, in and out of attaching. And so you have agency in whether you do that or not. Not simply acquiring a substance and taking a substance and really not having the experience of any agency in being able to do that. Now, uh, it does, uh, for some people, create an opening in, uh, and uh, evidence that there is something beyond the very limited solidness of self and world um, that then provides motivation to develop practice. But uh, I don't notice in and of itself uh, if it isn't followed, if that opening of consciousness isn't followed by the development of the skills to be in relationship to it, that that uh, perception has a lasting effect or changes much in a person. If you look at the experience of the US, for instance, the, the 60s and the original hippies and the original psychedelic experience and, you know, Timothy Leary saying that, uh, you know, in 20 years, the US was going to be an LSD nation and that we were going to turn away from war and turn away from capitalism because of the insights that were coming from this. Um, that didn't happen. I mean, in fact, most of the, I like to call them OHs, original hippies, uh, went headlong into capitalism in, as a result of, you know, just the, the, the smallest suppression from the, the authorities. Uh, so. so. Something interesting about Timothy Leary, if you look at his life uh, journey, it seems like he had a lot of sort of insecure attachment. Ah. You know, I just wonder if that kind of fueled the sort of grandiose. I mean, obviously, I, I don't know much about him, but obviously he's a visionary and he had a lot of a big effect on a lot of people. But I wonder if his insecurity sort of pushed him into that. You know, um, you know we, we, there's a high correlation between uh, dismissing attachment or avoidant attachment with uh, substance use. Um, in some sense, the uh, the early conditioning uh, demonstrates to you in a convincing way that other people are unreliable and so you can't really rely on them. And so then you develop a way of emotionally re regulating yourself that doesn't require you to depend on other people. In secure uh, systems, uh, you rely on other people to help you. That's the central source of emotional regulation, the central source of support. And you learn collaborative relationship skills so that you can be in relationship with people who will help you 
and they support and encourage you and you support and encourage them. And then uh, for people that that isn't really a possibility or don't have that skill, then they offer up these alternatives to having to do that as a way of uh, um, operating in the world. But at the same time, they're putting themselves at the front of the room, offering the, the teaching that they offer, which is in line with their attachment conditioning. Uh, you know, um, one of the most common experiences uh, being in the front of the room uh, is people coming in and wanting meditation to take them out of the place where they need to depend on anyone. They want to be completely separate, completely self-contained. <laughs> they are hoping that meditation will do that for them. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, I have reports from different people that monastic communities are, are, are also uh, engaged in that idea that we can withdraw from the need to be uh, interdependent in with other people. Well, I mean, I'm just wondering how does this idea, not to bring you away from the topic of your discussion, but the idea of dissolution and the idea that, you know, you really can't depend on any construct of thought, you know, and all, all other people that you perceive are just, it's just mental construction about five aggregates, which you really don't, you can't, you can't really understand them because you can't even understand your own five aggregates. You know, right. so I just really see how this this teaching, it, it, it's very kind of, uh, it leads one into a state of being very nihilistic in terms of the potential for meaningful attachment relationships. Um, yes, there is that. Does that, that make sense? I, yeah, no, totally. It makes sense. Uh, the idea that uh, interpersonal relationships are scary and painful, that I don't know how to operate them, uh, that uh, I can't trust my own perceptions of what's happening, and I need right. to be relieved of that suffering um, right. is one way to view that. So the you know I I always think of it as this fork in the road in one direction is nihilism. None of it matters. Nothing matters actually because nothing lasts. There's no contribution that can be made that will have any enduring impact. Um, but the other direction of course is full engagement, knowing perfectly well all of those uh, conditions are true and yet still pushing in the direction of, of uh, the pursuit of things that are meaningful, the pursuit of connection knowing full well that all of that will be lost. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it takes the quality of the present moment from being this nihilistic, hopeless, barren place that needs to be endured. And hopefully uh, I can figure out how to do that with no attachment to anything or anyone mm -hmm. and uh, flips it into this fully going in, fully engaging, fully experiencing everything that can be experienced knowing that it is just going to be lost at the end of each moment we we have this idea that we can reserve ourselves from the suffering by 
preserving ourselves from participating. And it's lost in both cases. But in one case, you have the whole experience of it and it's lost. And in the other, you don't have any experience. And it's and the potential of the moment uh, is lost. So you can go in and fully engage and really be present and uh, engaged and alive and learn how to lose it so that you don't cling to it, so you don't suffer from the clinging to it, as opposed to just being aversive to the experience of loss to the point that you withdraw from participating in in that. So I, it's sort of ironic. It's sort of ironic then that the skills of self-definition and self-agency, and you know, secure attachment, are really like the counterbalance to this sort of uh, total deconstruction of self in the world and the total loss of agency due to the fact that there's no self to control anything. So it seems like we really need a sort of intervention, like a bridge that we can, you know, be referencing while doing this work. Right. Um, it's like someone, like someone should teach meditation and attachment. <laughs> oh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you come in and, and you want to stop suffering. Um, and you know one of the principal ways of of doing that is to is to begin to reduce stimulus and you can really reduce it to almost nothing mm -hmm. uh, and so you don't have that experience of uh, connecting and losing but it it uh, shinzen used to call it the emptiness of nothing as opposed to the em emptiness of everything why not uh, be free rather than having to constantly restrict and narrow and withdraw to be engaging in everything that, that arises? Um, I often think of relationships as finding good traveling part companions that you're pursuing your exploration, you're finding things that are meaningful to you, you're exploring, and then you have these people you travel with that you can express and share that with, and they're also doing that, exploring and searching and finding. And then they have you that they can then exchange that, uh, uh, what they've discovered. Uh, one of the things you you learn when you teach is that you have to translate the experiences that you have and the meaning that you find into an expression that other people can understand. And part of that is making sense of it in a way that's different than just uh, being with it uh, without that uh, expression. Uh, and so it actually helps you see it in a different way than you might have seen it before. And uh, in bridging that experience, your in internal personal experience with someone else and relating it in a way that they can understand. And then they uh, respond by relating back to you their experience. Um, 
it becomes uh, a dance really of, of uh, an exchange of perspective, which really in many ways deepens each person's understanding, not only of the other, but uh, of themselves in that process. Uh, so I think in the West still uh, meditation, particularly Buddha, Buddha Dharma is not so mainstream that everybody is coming. I think that that bell curve really still applies on the, 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 the low functioning and people come because they're in suffering uh, and they've usually exhausted the typical Western approaches to relieving that suffering and have not found relief. And then people in the middle who are caught up in the, the, the routines of daily life don't have time or energy to pursue it. And because they don't have a strong motivation of suffering to do it, they don't value it enough to, to participate. And then when you get up to the other end, the super functioning end of things, where they easily go, go after things and get them and still find a sense of meaninglessness or dissatisfaction in that pursuit, they come because they're looking for meaning they're looking for something that would be of lasting value uh, having seen that the material aspects and the social position aspects don't provide that um, one group is hardly resourced and the other group is overly resourced because of the inequality in unequal nature of the the way that our society operates one of the things that's also happening now that's very distressing to most people is that it's it's hard to know what is and isn't true because uh, our media has abandoned truth as uh, its operating principle. This has been a 40-year transition from, uh, you know, in our country, for instance, at one time, the news had to be true. And uh, Reagan changed the rules so that it no longer has to be true. And so uh, you can say anything. And it's reported uh, in the same way as if, it's, if it is true. Most of us uh, who uh, can mentalize at a, a, a you know, uh, I don't know how to characterize it. Most people who can mentalize well can see immediately that, that most of what this is isn't true. But because there's no alternative to that, there's no reliable source of what might be true, it's very hard to discern what is and what isn't. Um, but people who don't mentalize well can't, and so they simply accept what isn't true as true and then operate from the place of that. So for instance, with the pandemic, you would think that uh, 600,000 deaths was concerning in terms of people who have died. And I would guess that that number is uh, fairly, uh, a, a fairly substantial underestimation of what's actually happened. And yet, uh, 
we won't be able to achieve uh, a sort of group immunity, a group protection from it, because uh, there's a, a contingent of the population that simply thinks it's a hoax, that the 600,000 deaths have not happened, that it's a, uh, it's a government plot to uh, track you, I mean, uh, amongst the other ideas that are about that. What do you do with that? So uh, that tends to produce a high level of fearfulness and a, a sense that nothing can be counted on, nothing can be uh, tracked. Which is not so different to this arising and passing, right? <laughs> So uh, if you get into that side of it and you see everything is arising and passing, everything is impermanent, the sense of self uh, solidifies around one version, but if you let it go, it just immediately solidifies around another version, comes and goes. But there's an openness to that and a capacity to track uh, how those responses go. It doesn't harden around these ideas uh, so much. And you have a tendency to be able to operate in a way that's constantly being realigned with the experience of the present moment, rather than fixating rigidly around an idea that is a delusion and unsupportable if you were to continuously take in information. And then of course you form intentions and take actions which create these karmic threads I think in the Theravada way of thinking, there is no collective karma. There's only individual karma. And in, in some schools of Mahayana, there is a, a sense of a collective karma. Hmm. How do you know what's meaningful to you? And have you investigated that? how good of an explorer are you? And have you investigated why the ability to explore that you have is the way that you have it? Another way to put that is, uh, have you explored your conditioning to see how that affects the way that you assemble this experience of solidness out of this undifferentiated, unfixating, raw, sensing experience. Um, you take in the raw data, it's compared to the database, if there's a close enough match of that undifferentiated, unfixated sensing data attaches to meaning and the perception of solid self and world arises, conceptual reality arises, and if each moment you're remaking it, then in each moment the, those experiences all shift and change. 
and you get used to that constant shifting and changing. Uh, you acclimatize to the nature of things as they really are. And so that fluidity is constantly happening. If you create an experience of self, and in the next moment there's contradictory information in the way that you formulated it, you simply drop the formula, the, the previous moment's uh, formation and reformat it in the next moment, constantly flowing, constantly changing, with no clinging, no aversion. Uh, it's quite fluid again. But it's different than the belief in solidness. Uh, it's, there, there's no need to defend that. You don't form a sense of self that then feels real and then can feel attacked and need needs to be defended. It just simply comes and goes. And what you notice as you move in and out of ultimate reality into uh, uh, conceptual reality, out of awareness into solid self and world, there's very little suffering in that. One of the things that was so mind-blowing about this experience, for me the first time that it happened, is I was stunned by the high level of suffering that was my ordinary experience, attaching to these very uh, um, limited ideas of myself and the very limited ideas of what the world might offer me and the tremendous pressure cooker of suffering that arose in response to that, and then to simply step out into a, a awareness where none of that was there, and then to come back in and it all return. Uh, and so there was that period of, uh, I, I would even use the word horror of being trapped in the in the the confinement of the experience of self and longing for the sense of no self but then getting stuck on that side and, and not being able to function as an ordinary householder particularly christian curious was there something about the duration or the quality of this no self experience that was different than like, I'll have, I'll be meditating and I'll get concentrated and it doesn't seem like myself is really there. So it's like, I have these little experiences all the time. I don't really make much of them in, in this kind of insight way. So what, what do you think? Is there, was, is there a quality you can identify that kind of flipped the switch for you? Um, I think that, uh, I would get trapped in the pressure cooker of self and not be able to get out. And it really um, magnified or heightened the sense of, of ordinary suffering. And without the contrast between relatively no suffering and the intensity of the suffering of being trapped in self, uh, it really was mind-blowing how uh, difficult particular formulations of self could be to, to inhabit. Um, as I got better and better of, move, of moving in and out of those experiences, of course, you come into uh, the formulation of a suffering sense of self and 
you recognize the intensity of it and you simply back out and reformulate it without the suffering. And so you don't have that experience. But it's when you don't have any agency and you can get, you know, bam, you're trapped in it. It, it still happens occasionally. And I have uh, people that I talk to that can help me come out of it. But um, it's, you know, so different than that easy flow back and forth between fixation and non-fixation. Um, the one area that it still comes up with me in certain relationships where um, trauma bonding is is activated rather than collaborative attachment is activated. And then all of a sudden, all of the, the that uh, conditioning comes online and, and it the, the quality of trauma bonding for me is uh, terror. It's uh, that level of intensity. Um, and if you get stuck there, then you're, you're in this heightened experience of terror. Uh, and then you come out, of course, and it, it vanishes just like any ordinary experience of arising and passing. So it's, it's just the getting stuck now that occasionally happens that's so painful. But I also, um, because this is, uh, you know, the, my practice is fairly long, I recognize that I'm trapped and I can't get myself out, but that it's not real. And that I just need to get somebody to help me and then I can come out. Um, and I, I don't, um, since I don't believe it, the intention and actions I take are not informed by the terror. So I'm not creating devastating karma, you know, as I like to say, I'm not destroying relationships because I'm in so much pain. I'm just looking for the people that can help me and trying to get with them so that, that I can be relieved of it. But even though I have that insight and I don't believe it, it doesn't mean I can always get myself out of it, which is the, the nature of secure collaborative relationships. When you can't do it for yourself, you have around you the people that can, that know how to help you, and you just have to go ask them to help you, and then they help you. And, and then so, when they get stuck in the same way, they just come to you and, and ask you to help them, and then you help them, and, that, and that's the, the the agreement. Jake, so I, I just wanted to. Uh, this was on my mind before we got online today, I thought if there's one thing I want to hear George speak about today, it's about trauma bonding, because I'm not, I just wonder if you could share about that. And so what I'm just to feedback what I just heard from you is though, even, even though you have this capacity of insight to know that all fabrications are totally impermanent and not self and whatnot, but you can still get in this zone of kind of being locked into an agitated state and the remedy for you to get out of that is to have a secure collaborative relationship. That, that's what helps you out of it. So one was just my affirming my interest in the topic and two is just feeding back what I just under, understood you say. Right, so. that's correct. Um, so you develop a relationship, uh, you uh, authentically express yourself to the other person, you accept their authentic expression, and then you learn about each other and the way that your conditioning operates. And then you learn uh, 
uh, ways to help other people when they get stuck. And then they learn how to help you when you get stuck. And so the, the trade is I'm available to you when you need, uh, when you can't get yourself unstuck and you're available to me when I can't get myself unstuck. So, so would a, would a trauma bonded situation be like, okay, you're presented with some situation which for some reason triggers you into a sort of fear state. And then the response is you go to the person that's triggered you and you kind of demand them to help you out. You demand them to sort of, uh, or you yeah, express to them your fear I, or your agitation. Don't, don't go to the person I'm trauma bonded with in right. a moment of activation. Because okay. it's very likely that they're also triggered and that we're locked in together. Okay. So okay. the the last example was the person was no longer the person. The person was my mother. And I was no longer responding to the things that the person did in the present moment as if they were them. I was yeah. reacting as if they were my mother and it was, you know, 60 years ago. Right. And even though there was an awareness that that wasn't actually what was happening, the responses were still unconsciously in that way. Yeah. So, um, but in order for that trauma bond to work, it's, it's two-sided. They're also engaged in it. And I'm, I am not, uh, me, I'm their, uh, I, I'm going to guess that it, it's their mother too. So two guys, and we're each relating to each other as if we were each other's mothers in a, in a, in a really unhealthy, painful way. <laughs> well, I relate to a friend of mine as if he's my mother in a healthier way. <laughs> I don't want to relate to him like he's my mother. I want to relate to him like he's who he is in this moment, yeah. right? That's when you come out of it, of course, then you're back into the present moment. You're back into the conditions as they are now. You're not trapped in, in an, the unbearable bind of that uh, trauma experience. So and then you no can actually what... operate in a way that's useful. <clears throat> getting dark in here. Let's turn on some lights. You were going to say? So that, that's always just kind of around the corner for people with certain types of conditioning is that no matter how much your, your practice progresses, there's always this potential that through your engagement in the world, you know, there could be this hairpin trigger without, you know, you could be trying to do a business thing or a social thing, and then this thing could go off and then you're in like sabotage mode. And this, this you know, advanced states of meditation don't cure that. You need another medicine to be working with that situation. Yeah, that's where the collaborative relationships come in, the, the secure collaborative relationships. You know, you just get somebody on the phone and say, it's happening again. <laughs> and they know exactly what to do. <laughs> And then they do it. And then in 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, you're out of it. And then you can respond in a, in a, in a 
more skillful way. I mean, do people really support each other on that level? I mean, I'm just so uninformed, you know? Does it <laughs> Why really would work? It do people... I don't know. I'm just unexperienced, you know? Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's not in my mind yet. I'm learning this from you. That just the potential, I could call someone and have this topic be like totally normal. Like, because normally in society, trauma and, you know, this sort of suffering is, it's, it's not something that's in our mainstream dialogue, you know? Well, it's, if you, if you believe that it's actually happening and it's real and that you have to take action in response to it, then usually your intention and actions have gone off already and, and you're, you're down the road of, of, um, more suffering. But yes, I think that when I talk about uh, A and B relationships where you really are able to express everything, these are these are the things. Because you don't have to talk about it. Um, uh, it's not like you have these heavy conversations. Um, I, I, you know, I have a friend, I can tell from the quality of his voice where he's at um, because I know him well enough mm. and then I can respond automatically without him even requesting anything because I can tell the, his mind state by his presentation. You want to know the people closest to you that well so that you know how to respond so that when you call them, they can tell by the way that you're presenting the hello, uh, what mind state you're in and what they might have to do in order to help you. Mm. Um, you, you know, you, the people that are closest to you, you're in charge, you are charged with their care and you have to provide it when they need it. Uh, and if they, if they, even if they don't know they need it, but you recognize that that's where they're at, you, you provide that care for them. And then they do that for you. And so you're, you, you don't have to have, you know, what I like to call it, the talk. You just have to interact. Uh, um, and, uh, and if you can put strategically enough people around you that have that intimate knowledge of you, you move through life in a way that, that, that has uh, much less suffering. Obviously, when you go for things that you really want, you, you could get them and you'll lose them, of course, or not get them or get something else. And there's a, a suffering that can arise in that. Um, but when you really shift into this uh, understanding that this secure base, this, uh, this inner circle is really what supports you as you move through life, it becomes more valuable than all of the rest of that stuff. And, and, and actually in being in that uh, exchange with other people, the meaning is there. And so all of the rest of it, getting and finding meaning in social position or material or whatever it is, obviously you want to be, uh, you want to have the four basics, uh, food, clothing, shelter, medicine, Uh, did you want to meditate? <laughs> um, I I I want us to do the just don't go on technique.
Um, let's see. Because that's the one that really sort of points in the direction of things not being so solid. All right, um, go ahead and take your meditation postures. So any comments or questions about what we just did? So thank you all for coming. Um, we are doing a series of level one classes starting on uh, Saturday, July 10th. So 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, we're gonna take us take uh, everybody through the level one curriculum uh, in three Saturdays. And then on the fourth uh, Saturday, uh, we're gonna do um, meditation and attachment for collaborative relationships. So starting on the 10th, every other Saturday for two months, we'll do day longs. Uh, we have a level, a level two uh, um, starting in September. Uh, the registration is open on the website and the dates are all there if you want to take a look at that. It's recommended that you do the level one course before you do the level two course, but some people don't mind jumping into the deep end of the pool. So if you don't do the level one, you can come right into the level two. Um, the spaces there are limited. Um, with uh, my schedule the way it is, there, there are only 10 spaces for uh, participation in the class with mentoring. Uh, so, um, um, we'll, we'll leave it more open for people just to attend without. And then we've decided to uh, return to in-person retreats. And so the we have a retreat in December, December 26th until uh, January 1st uh, in Badger, California at the Seven Circles uh, Retreat Center. Uh, that's limited to 16 spaces. We haven't opened that up, but if that's something that you're interested in, we think that it will probably fill up pretty quickly. Thank you for coming to the uh, to the class. I offer it on a, a, a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity, which means I offer the teaching freely. But I do hope that you'll make a donation to help support me and also support the work that Metagroup is doing. There's a link uh, for a donation on the website. Thank you for coming. I hope to see you soon somewhere on the path. Bye. Hi, George. Thanks. Thanks, George. Yeah. See you Thank soon. You. Bye.